again one more time. We are in Luke 10. As an application of Romans 1 to 3, we spent January to March in Romans 1 to 3, and now we're in Luke 10 to apply all that doctrine that we picked up there. What, is it, what difference does it make to us that people are, are sinful and we ourselves are sinful? Well, we, we have a gospel to take to them, and we're seeing this, how the gospel is taken in Luke 10. But about a month ago, right before Palm, the Sunday before Palm Sunday, my friend Jason Cook from Fellowship Memphis was preaching here, and he took us through this text. And that's good for my purposes today, because uh, it's always fun to preach after a friend. I get to be part two in this text with this story that we know well. So take our coming back to this very familiar story and what precedes it as a part two to Jason taking this with us back in March, uh, just like we took the last two Sundays in a part one, part two approach. Recall that verses 1 through 24 here we took in part one, part two, and now verses 25 through 37. And let's understand the text we're in as a continuation of the mission of the 72 that are sent out two by two. We, we saw them in the first 24 chapters. In this respect, the Good Samaritan story is often sort of scooped out and made to stand alone, but I, I want to show it to you in context of Luke 10 because there's some things that the last two weeks are going to help us to see our being in Luke 10 already. But if we were to read Luke 10 like a play, uh, the scene changes in verse 25, but not the play. There's three acts in Luke 10. Verses 1 through 24 is the message act, the going and the telling primarily. They also were involved in healing and, 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 and uh, liberating people from oppression. But in verses 25 to 37, we get the mercy act, the compassion of the Samaritan. And the play concludes with two more followers. You get 72 in verses 1 through 24, who are sent out two by two, and you end with two more followers, two sisters, who inhabit attention. Same play, same director, same stage, but now a different scene at verse 25. And, and again, we're better off for looking at this story today for being in Luke 10 already the past couple of Sundays. And so to set the scene here in verse 25, let's go back to verse 18, where we were the last two Sundays. Because in verse 18, you've got subjects who are reminiscent of the lawyer in verse 25 and the Samaritan in verse 33. Verse 18 of Luke 10, And he, Jesus, said to them, the 72, I saw Satan fall like lightning, from heaven. What I want to do with us this morning is look at the lawyer and look at the Samaritan because who we have in both are portraits of our enemy and our Savior, who are both there in verse 18. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The reason it's been difficult for you, 72, in some of the places you go is because of Satan. And the reason that the, that the lawyer and the priest and the Levite are like they are is also flowing out of his influence and the way he operates. Who we have in the lawyer and the Samaritan are portraits, miniatures of our enemy and our Savior. Who they are, how they are. 
I know you've heard the Good Samaritan story hundreds of times. In fact, if you're honest, some of you kind of groaned, oh boy, another treatment of the Good Samaritan this morning. That's how we are. I get it. I'm that way myself. What we're going to do with it now, though, is we're going to come at it from a little different angle. We're going to look at the story, but we're going to come at it keying on the lawyer who presents the situation into which the story fits, and then we're going to look at the Samaritan, because who we have in both is how our enemy operates and how our Savior operates. Verse 25, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Think, where have you seen that phrase before in the Gospels? When Jesus was 40 days in the wilderness. Remember that early in his ministry? Matthew chapter 4. In fact, it's also in Luke chapter 4, just a few chapters back from here. The temptation narrative, it's called. Satan, his effort to ruin Jesus by trying to use his humanity against him. There's a place in that narrative where Jesus answers one of the temptations by saying to Satan, you shall not put your Lord, your, the Lord your God to the test. And we get in verse 25, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. And this lawyer, from his initial question in verse 25, look at the text, his initial question in verse 25, his follow-up question in verse 29, he's even quoting the law and he gets the bullseye. He knows the target. Teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? Jesus says, how do you read the law? And he goes right to the bullseye. Ding, 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 ding. Right answer. And he answers uh, about the loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He gets it. He puts both together. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. What an answer. And yet this guy bears a resemblance to Satan himself. Probably didn't recognize it, but in doing this, note the way this is said to us. Verse 25, testing Jesus as he did. Verse 29, desiring to justify himself, says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The lawyer is Satan-like. The Samaritan will come to, he's Christ-like. Why is this important? The lawyer is one of the good people in that society alongside the priest and the Levite in the story. But it's the good people here who know the scripture. The lawyer even quotes the bullseye, as I said, but they want to limit its application to themselves. It's what all the good people in this story have in common is that they're very much like Satan. Why is it important that we note this? Because God remains God even when his good people do not do like Jesus does. The good people don't look good in this story. And they don't look good in the lead up to the story. They even look like Satan. And you say, well, how, how could that be? Really? I mean, is that, not, is that not being overly harsh? No. Look at the context. God remains God even when his people do not do like Jesus does. But let's take it a step further. God remains God even when Satan enlists his people to do as he does. Whether we recognize Satan's enlisted us or hasn't, 
God remains God even when Satan enlists us to do as he does. And we say, how is that possible? Because Satan is the epitome of opposition to God, is he not? But we can be oppositional to God too. Directly or indirectly, Satan's preferred way is direct opposition. Here's the lawyer stood up to put him to the test. This is more direct opposition. Put him to the test. Echoes of the temptation narrative. The more indirect opposition comes from the priest and the Levite in the story that follows, who also do the work of Satan, even if passively, but God remains God, even when Satan enlists his people to do as he, Satan, does to oppose God, whether our means are direct or indirect. I've likened what we have here to a play, a drama, This is the drama of the eternal series, as we are calling this month in Luke 10. And in verses 25 to 37 here, we have the next scene in the same play. Jesus sends his people out into the world, first act. And what do we find? In verses 1 through 24, we find people in need of hearing the message of Christ. The message that addresses our sinfulness, that though we are more sinful than we know, more loved than we realize. And some will hear the message and some will don't. We see that in verses 1 to 24, we've been the last couple of weeks. The gospel is attractive and offensive both. Not one or the other, attractive and offensive both. In verses 25 to 37 now, we find attentiveness to people's needs. Because people have needs. And we apply to those needs the mercy of Christ. The play is about mission. The mission of the church with the message of Christ and the mercy of Christ and with the right motivation as we talked about Sunday. That what we get real gung-ho about is not the results and not the success. That there's nothing wrong with celebrating success. But what does he tell us in verse 20? Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's the motivation. Whether we succeed or not, it's enemy territory that we go into. And sometimes that enemy territory, in Luke chapter 10, if you just take Luke chapter 10, sometimes that enemy territory looks like self-assured cities. Remember verses 13 and 15? The places that are too cool for the gospel? And sometimes enemy territory looks like a crime scene going from the road down from Jerusalem to Jericho. You follow? It's enemy territory in the first two acts of Luke 10, where the followers are sent, with the exception of the welcoming homes in the first act and the last act when we go to Martha's home. But even there, there's tension. The gospel creates tension. It doesn't leave us the way we are found. It creates tension. Now, thinking this out, uh, let me take a play. Speaking of acts and plays, the play Faust. Uh, maybe in one of your literature classes at, at some point, uh, you read the German author Goethe's play Faust, or you've heard of the Faustian bargain, right? Faust, the play was about a scholar, German play, Heinrich Faust, 
who traded his soul to the devil in order to have whatever he wanted on earth. That was the bargain. So when people talk about a Faustian bargain, it means you're, you're giving up something very precious to get something in return that you're going to regret. In fact, that's the epitome of an antichrist spirit. When Jesus was met with similar temptation, he refused it. Worship me and I'll give you all these kingdoms. Jesus said, no, but Faust said, yes, he gave in. He's the antichrist in that sense. The devil in that play goes by the name Mephistopheles. And he says this about himself. He gives this little rhyme. I am the spirit who negates and rightly so for all that comes to be deserves to perish wretchedly. It would be better if nothing had ever been. That's the creed of the devil in the Faustian play. I am the spirit who negates and rightly so for all that comes to be deserves to perish wretchedly. It would be better if nothing had ever been. Why is there anything God? All that is deserves to perish wretchedly because God put all that is together, right? When the lawyer asks his follow-up question in verse 29, note carefully the text tells us he is desiring to justify himself. And he is in that actually saying, it would be better, Jesus, if you're the lawgiver, it would be better that you had never given it because I don't want to do it your way. The desire to self-justify is a negating desire. I am the spirit who negates, and rightly so, for all that comes to be deserves to perish wretchedly. It would be better if nothing had ever been. That's at the heart of not just Satan, but every human desire to self-justify. Self-justification is on display, as it is on display in verse 29, wants to negate what God has revealed Whether the person ever recognizes he's doing this or not, it's there. There is one in the world who recognizes this in himself and embraces it. Satan, the spirit who negates for all that comes to be deserves to perish wretchedly. It would be better if nothing had ever been. Who is responsible for everything coming to be? The one who cast Satan out of heaven. Satan is an infinitely self-justifying being. But here's the bridge. So are most good people. Good people can be infinitely self-justifying. And here's where this begins to hit close to home for us. Because you see, the way that most of us read and apply the Good Samaritan story is I need to find some downtrodden person and help them. The next time somebody comes and panhandles me at the gas station, I need to give them something. The next time I see a stranded motorist, I need to stop and help. I don't need to be the priest driving by, the Levite driving by. We think of these one-offs. In fact, uh, just this week, uh, I'm leaving home. I I round the corner Ridgeway Loop and a man... Uh, is broken down. His car, his hood is up, and I pull over. 
and uh, he's just called his girlfriend. He was coming to pick her up. She works in one of the buildings here, and so he said, look, I'm, I'm okay. Do you know of a mechanic close by? And I said, well, mine's a little ways from here. And I said, but I do have uh, in my phone the number of a wrecker service I use. When you drive older cars, as we do, you keep a wrecker service uh, on speed dial. My truck's nine years old, Lynn's car's 13 years old. I mean, we keep them up nice, but they're older cars. And so uh, uh, he, he thanked me for that. But no sooner had I driven off that I thought, oh, that, I didn't do enough, you know. I should have offered him a ride. I should have brought him back here to the church with his girlfriend to, you know, to have a water and just uh, hang out until the wrecker comes. You know, and I'm going home all guilt-ridden, stricken like I do, you know. You're probably like me in that. See, we think every time, oh, I've not done enough. I'm the priest. I'm the Levite. I feel so guilty. That's how we interact with this story. We think about this in one-off kinds of situations and settings. But frankly, listen, one-offs aren't that hard to do. Not really. Not that we need to make something hard for it to be worthwhile for God, but one-off things are done more or less with our spare time and our spare change, as it were. And that's good as far as it goes, but Jesus will take us farther still. And, and this story is, is, is enduring, and regrettably it's famous, because every time something becomes famous, it loses the point. Every time something becomes overly familiar to us, we lose the point. Because what we do with this story is... It's because everybody's so familiar with it, the preacher feels like he's got to dress it up and he's got to get into the minutia, into the mind of the, the priest. And what might the oil and wine mean on the wounds? And, and the fact that the Samaritan says, you know, I'll pay you more if you, and we get into all of that. We retell the story and for all of that, we miss the point that this story is told in response to someone with a spirit of negation trying to justify himself before God. What a pitiful creature that is. It would be better if nothing had ever been rather than God creating something that makes me accountable to him in a way I don't want to be. That is what is going on with the lawyer. And it's what's in the priest, and it's what's in the Levite, and when we're honest, it's what's in you and me. This is antichrist. This is anti-gospel. And on the part of good people, the best people Israel had to offer. When the lawyer seeks to justify himself, he has been enlisted to do what Satan does. And so too the priest and the Levite in the story. They are extensions of the lawyer. They are following suit only more indirectly. The lawyer is just being more direct. And he's being veiled. He wants to have a theological discussion, but he doesn't want his life to change. He doesn't want God to rearrange the furniture in his heart. One of the biggest ploys of Satan is to hide behind theology, to push it out there, to use it to make us think we're making a a spiritual point when the reality is we just don't want God to bother us. See, everybody knows the law. Lawyer, he certainly gets it. Priest, he certainly gets it. Levite, he certainly gets it. 
But they're not committed to doing it. And they're the good people. They're the heroes. Remember why we came to Luke 10? Remember, I said it in the very beginning, to apply Romans 1 through 3. Do you remember Romans 3, 22? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That was our Easter text here. Good people are often infinitely self-justifying, which means good people need the gospel. The spirit of Antichrist is not just in the world this way, but it's in the church too. And it's in the church in ways we don't even recognize because our Americanism adds another layer of self-justification. In some respects, Americans are the hardest people on earth to reach with the gospel because we're so religious and we're so content in who we are and we're so tribal. We can be the hardest people on earth to minister to. This is why we have to be, Romans 3.24, justified by his grace as a gift, a gift God never takes back, thankfully. Even when his people, we, are enlisted to do as Satan does, God remains God and God remains God for us. That's a great gospel we have. The gospel is that great. But in avoiding the instruction of God, to love one's neighbor, acting as if we don't know who our neighbor might be. And in the case of the priest and the Levite, look at the priest and the Levite. Wasn't the neighbor even made obvious? So you go from the law, you're asking this sort of, uh, you know, let's have a philosophical debate here. Well, uh, you know, who is the neighbor? And Jesus says, well, I'll tell you how much you don't get it. I'll put you in a story where it's obvious who the neighbor is. He's the guy bleeding. He's in trauma. And you just go on by. It's, it's not a case that you're missing who. It's that you're resisting me. In avoiding the instruction, in avoiding the instruction of God to love one's neighbor, which we all do, myself included in, in various kinds of ways, we're enlisted in that to do what Satan is active in the world doing, to oppose, to negate the way of Christ in the world. And th this is why it is so bad a thing when the world thinks the church doesn't care. We're confronted here with the harder part of neighboring in Luke 10. This is the harder part of neighboring. The hard part is really not chatting people up in spiritual conversation. You know, you can ask almost anybody today, do you have any spiritual beliefs? If you're interested in evangelism, if you want to get on the topic with a stranger, that's a great question to get uh, on the topic of, of spiritual things. Just ask somebody, do you, do you have any spiritual beliefs? It's a basic engagement question. Just start there if you want to share your faith. That's not hard neighboring. Yes, for those of us that are introverted, it is hard. We have a lot to overcome. But it's, it's not hard to talk and, and speak. The harder part of neighboring is not the one-off stuff. 
It's good as far as it goes. But the harder part of neighboring gets into, gets us into dignifying the other from me enough to get inside their trouble, to get inside their hurt, to get inside their pain. Which is where the Samaritan goes, doesn't he? And he goes there as an other, a vilified other. This is what Jason Cook was teaching us a month ago, and it was a brilliant treatment of this because what he was trying to help us to see, if we're going to go and do likewise, we all know verse 37, go and do likewise, the big payoff statement. But if you're going to do that in ways ongoing, neighboring ongoing, not not occasional one-offs, but neighboring ongoing, it will take us into, by necessity, it will take us into the hurts and the troubles and the pains of the other from us. And one of the more obvious applications here is along race and class lines. A pressing application here and now as I speak to a predominantly white audience is how black brothers and sisters in Christ are asking us, their white brothers and sisters in Christ, to enter their hurt and pain, to dignify them in it, to recognize, not just sympathize, but to recognize the, the dignity of our, of our kin, our brothers and sisters in Christ, in these systemic problems with race and class ongoing that they know all too well and they're having to spend all this energy, energy convincing us is happening. And listen, I know to whom I speak, conservative evangelicals. I know you struggle with this. I know even now people are, the dander is rising and you're resisting. Just hear me out. Part of the struggle is the stubbornness of sin that nobody wants to hear what's wrong with us or what might be. Part of the struggle is the blindness, the, the blinding work of Satan. But another part of it is, is, for our circles, is because civil rights struggles get co-opted by liberal messaging. They do. And, and that's our real problem. We don't like the liberals. And thereby, social conservatives get blamed for cultural racism. We feel like all this is laid at, at our doorstep. We're told we're at fault for ongoing, and, and, and all we've done is benefited. And so it's really easy for us to give lip service to this, to say, yes, racism, classism, it's a sin, but then remain wary of calls to search ourselves and repent of it because to a lot of us it feels like we're somehow we're giving into a liberalized concern. And I understand this. Listen, I know this is hard for us on different levels. I, I know where it has been hard for me. I'll go first where I've had to repent of my racisms, plural, domestic and, and abroad. And my classism also, which is about socioeconomic rank. Did you go to the right schools? Do you wear the right labels? Do you have the right kind of home? And if this is, if, if this is still hard and awkward for me some years into this now, where I've been quietly going about the work of intentionally placing myself where I have to build relationships across social and ethnic and economic lines, it's doubly, triply hard for those of you who aren't doing this at all. But I want you to consider... Can I ask you to just consider whether our defensiveness and dismissiveness to a lot of the conversation happening among evangelicals now about race and racism, 
whether at heart there isn't some self-justification going on in us when we're defensive or dismissive or indifferent. Have we really listened before we start speaking? Before we just go, you know, that's not that. I'm, I'm not that way. Do we know why the pundit on TV has our ear more than the guy who made our ear? You get someone's ear, you get their heart. Centuries later, are we still saying, are we not still saying, who is my neighbor, Lord? Because we want to always draw that line around who we know and what's just like us and who thinks like us and who is like us, 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 us. And how does Jesus present himself in this story? As the other. He's the other. He's the Samaritan. We're told to be like him, the Samaritan, but that's because of who the Samaritan represents. Christ himself. Say, I don't really know about you. I don't really know about you. I say I know you, but I may just be preaching to myself and two or three others. But in this, I can tell you that I feel like that guy in the Gospels who, you know the guy in the Gospels who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief? See, I read this classic story and I say, Lord, I care, but help my uncaring. I feel both. And look, don't get down on yourself with what I'm saying to you because I'm not, I'm not really coming after you, nor does the Lord. How does the Lord confront us in our sin? Does he get us in a headlock? He tells us stories. That's how he confronts you in your sin. He tells you a gospel story where you see yourself more clearly than you ever have and you go, oh, I don't know if I like what I'm seeing there and you want to turn away, but at every point you turn, you see him. That's how he confronts us. He pursues us. We see ourselves for who we are in our sin and self-justification, but we also see him for how gracious he will be to us ongoing. He never stops neighboring. We do. We give up. We stop. We start. We try it. It didn't, it didn't work like I thought, you know, and et cetera and so on. And, and he doesn't. Look, if you go all getting down on yourself... Oh, I'm not Samaritan enough. If that's your takeaway from this, if you do that, you miss what we're supposed to see, that Christ himself is the good Samaritan. And if we do Samaritan well, verse 37, if we go and do likewise and there's success in that, even the demons are subject to us, Lord, like the 72, if that happens, great, but it's because of him. It's because our names have already been written in heaven. But even when we're at our worst, this is what I love about gospel truth, even when we're at our most dismissive, our most avoidant, our most indifferent, our most negligent, Christ remains at his best. And doesn't just remain at his best, but remains at his best for you and me. He's for us. That is a great truth. That means he's infinitely patient with my learning curve. And my learning curve is steep. And so is yours. We're told to do like the Samaritan, yes, but that's because of who he represents. Who was himself an outsider and vilified? Who was the other? Who was the ultimate outsider, if not the God-man? There was no one like him. Who's the one who came to his own, but his own did not receive him? Who's the one who had no beauty or majesty in his own person that we might desire him? And yet we do desire him. Why? 
because of his mercy to the merciless as well as the downtrodden, to his justifying grace when we would justify ourselves. Go and do likewise, verse 37, is to do Christ likewise, which presupposes that we meet the one who is both just and justifier, as we learned in Romans 3. We need him more than we know. I'll conclude with this and then we'll sing and we'll have a benediction. The Russian novelist Dostoevsky, his book, The Brothers Karamazov, it's a classic. One of the brothers, Ivan, is infinitely self-justifying. And to justify that, he tells a story to his devout brother, Aloysia. And the story is called The Grand Inquisitor. Maybe you've heard about it. Famous piece of literature. Ivan tells the Grand Inquisitor story as a justification for his atheism, for what's wrong with the church. The church has abused its power. And he spins this story, but even as he does it, Dostoevsky, who's really writing the story through Ivan, you understand, it's a novel. Dostoevsky masterfully uses the story to show that even the corrupt society of Christianity will still manage to make room for its founder despite ourselves. Ivan Karamazov's story is set in Seville, Spain. It's set there during the time of the Spanish Inquisition. It's a dark time in church history. In the story, Christ appears in Seville and he raises a, a child to life. The day before he does that, the Grand Inquisitor, the one in charge of the Inquisitions, had burned a hundred heretics at the stake and Christ showed up there too and began raising those people to life, the heretics. Well, the Grand Inquisitor can't have this. Christ's authority over life and death undermines his power over the church and so he has Christ arrested. He knows who he is. He has him thrown into prison. And there in prison, the Inquisitor visits Christ and lectures him about the way things ought to be and would be if the Inquisitor was in charge. And it's very self-justifying. Christ never answers the Inquisitor a word. He stays silent the entire dialogue from the Inquisitor. And after listening to everything the Grand Inquisitor has to say in rejection of him, Christ rises and walks over and kisses the man. He kisses him. And Dostoevsky writes this, that the kiss burned in the Inquisitor's heart, but the old man held to his former idea. And yet he, lay, he leaves the prison door open. He says to Christ, go, come no more, not at all, never, never. The kiss burned in his heart, but he held to his former idea. Seeking to justify himself, the lawyer said, and the priest passed by, and so too the Levite. This story is told in response to our spirit of negation that wants to self-justify in the face of God. But the Samaritan, he stopped and presents mercy so that we let go of our self-justifying ways and our avoidances of the harder work of neighboring. The Samaritan is good because the Samaritan is like Christ. The one rejected by men, the ultimate outsider, the other vilified, but who returns a kiss for rejection 
and to our reluctance to go where he goes and do as he does, continues to say, follow me, follow me, and I'll give you the power to care. That's what we need. Stand with me. Let's pray. Let's sing. And we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for how it teaches centuries later. Thank you for what it shows us of ourselves, but also what it shows us of you. Because if it just showed us ourselves, we would be despairing and we would be lost in our despair. But sin is never the last word and we are not left in our despair. We're shown one who stops and one who condescends to us in our weakness and in our avoidance and in our misery and in our despair and applies his healing touch and applies his truth. I thank you, Lord, that you're a God who tells stories to sin, that you don't put us in a headlock, you don't have a whipping post, and all such other nonsensical things we say. You have a cross, and you took that cross yourself so that what we justly merit from you for all of our self-justifications does not visit us. Lord, we have too great a gospel to stay silent about it. Help us to learn it, know it inside and out, live it. And in doing so, we will see ourselves for who we really are. And we will see our learning curve is steep. But Lord, we will see you at every turn. If we try to escape you to the depths, you are there. If we go to the heights, you are there. If we go east, west, north, or south, we bump into you because you are the pursuing God. You don't chase us, but you do pursue Thank you for who you are in your loveliness, in your brilliance, in your goodness to those of us, in particular me, the chief among them, who need the grace continuously. Thank you. Thank you for returning a kiss to our scorn when we're not even aware we're doing it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.